Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. We're glad you can join us as interim pastor Kyle Julius shares a weekly message to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Here's Pastor Kyle. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians. I'm going to continue our study uh, looking in chapter 6, starting in verses 5, and we'll read through verses 9 together. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verses 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that Whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you. Thank you for fact that Jesus is alive. We thank you, Lord, that there is an empty tomb and an occupied throne. We do thank you that there is nothing outside of your control. And we thank you that we get to gather here this morning under the authority of your word as your people. So speak, O Lord, your servants are listening. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Elizabeth Elliott, missionary and missionary wife of Jim Elliott, popularized this old poem. It goes like this. From an old English parsonage down by the sea, there came in the twilight a message to me. Its quaint Saxon legend, deeply engraven, hath, it seems to me, teaching from heaven. And on through the doors, the quiet words ring like a low inspiration. Do the next thing. Many a questioning, many a fear, many a doubt hath its quieting here. Moment by moment, let down from heaven, time, opportunity, and guidance are given. Fear not tomorrow's child of the king. Trust them with Jesus. Do the next thing. Do it immediately, do it with prayer, do it reliantly, casting all care, do it with reverence, tracing his hand, who placed it before thee with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotence, safe neath his wing, leave all results, do the next thing. Looking for Jesus, ever serener, working or suffering by thy demeanor, in his dear presence, the rest of his calm, The light of his countenance be thy song. Strong in his faithfulness, praise and sing. Then as he beckons thee, do the next thing. 
do the next thing. This poem embodies the call for Christians to be faithful and diligent and wherever and whatever God has placed you and given you. Instead of pondering and putting around trying to figure out what God's will is for you, Eliot's counsel in this poem was do the next thing. And Paul's counsel to us this morning in our passage has the same spirit about that, only he goes a little bit further than do the next thing. Paul tells us in verses 5-9 through nine this morning, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of Christ. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of Christ. And then Paul outlines two vices. He gives us two vices to be on guard against in order to do all things for the glory of Christ. We're going to look at two vices here this morning. We're going to look at the vices of people-pleasing and the vices of partiality. If we're going to live a life that gives glory to Jesus and is for the increase of Jesus in our lives, people-pleasing and partiality are two sins to stay away from, to guard against, and to check our hearts against. So let's look at the first in verses 5 through 8 which is be on guard against people-pleasing. If we are to do all things to the glory of Christ, we must be on guard against this tendency to please people. Paul has addressed wives and husbands, uh, children and parents. Uh, Now he concludes his household codes, if you will, in this passage with addressing slaves and masters. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time Uh, going over slavery in the New Testament and Roman Greco culture. But for the sake of some of you who might be thinking, wait a minute, uh, is not the real issue in this passage slavery? Uh, Why is Paul not addressing the injustice of slavery and masters? Why isn't his word here in verses 5 through 9 not to describe how the relationship should be, but that there should be no relationship between a slave and master to begin with? Well, For those who are asking that question, and for those who perhaps might have a friend who refused to believe in Christianity or the Bible because it endorses slavery, I feel compelled to make a comment about slavery in the New Testament. And here's the first thing that we need to know about this passage here, and slavery and masters, is that slavery in the Roman Greco culture was not based on ethnicity. We have a tendency to think, because of our own cultural past, that every time we see slave and master relationship in the Bible, we assume that the slavery was based on an idea of an inferiority of another race or culture. But that's not the issue here in Ephesus. That wasn't the issue when the New Testament was penned. John Stott, in his commentary on Ephesians, makes this observation. Slavery seems to have been a universal in the ancient world. A high percentage of the population were slaves, It has actually been computed that in the Roman Empire there were six million slaves. They constituted the workforce and included not only domestic servants and manual laborers, but educated people as well, like doctors, teachers, and administrators. Slaves could be inherited or purchased or acquired in settlement of a bad debt, and prisoners of war were commonly, they became slaves. Nobody queried or challenged the arrangement. The institution of slavery was a fact of Mediterranean economic life, so completely accepted as a part of the labor structure of the time that one cannot correctly speak of the slave problem in antiquity. In other words, slaves were essentially the middle class of the ancient world. They were workers. 
I mean, that list here that Stott pointed out, doctors, teachers, administrators, those are people that we esteem high value of in our culture today, and yet people in that class could have become slaves. There was a various, various reasons why they could have become slaves. Stott mentions that uh, a common one was uh, settling a bad debt. So if you were in debt, there was no payment plan in the ancient world. You just became a servant of the one whom you were in debt to until you were then released. So the issue of slavery in the Bible becomes less of an issue when we stop reading the Bible in our own cultural understanding. When we stop thinking every time we see something in the Bible, um, it has to do with our dark history in America when we enslaved a people group because of ethnicity. Here's, here's, a, good, um, here's a good litmus test here. If you, here. Here's a good rule of thumb, if you will, to interpreting the Bible. And hard passages like verse, the, the passage that we have before us this morning. If we're going to get application out of this, here's one thing to remember. When you come across a passage like this with these kind of issues, remind yourself that it cannot mean today what it did not mean to them. It cannot mean today what it never meant to them. So for us to assume that the Bible teaches this ethic of slavery, the one that we're familiar with, is to read the Bible incorrectly. It's to have a bad hermeneutic. We have to understand the culture and the time. Look, there is a cultural gap between us and the Bible. And our job as faithful interpreters, faithful appliers, faithful followers of Jesus, is to not impose everything in our own understanding of our own culture onto the text, but it's to understand the text in which it was written and then applied for us today. That's how we're going to be faithful interpreters of Scripture. So I said I wasn't going to spend too much time on the slavery issue. I hope that I have at least pointed out or made a compelling argument that it's not the same issue that we would think of today. And I want to move on to the heart of this message in the heart of these couple verses. Because if slaves then were essentially a part of the labor class and a part of heads and household families, look, you notice that Paul addresses not only bond servants, but he addresses masters. Um, these would have been the heads of the households. These would have been the husbands that Paul addressed earlier on in the passage. These would have been the fathers that we looked at last week. So therefore, Paul is addressing everyday common people, part of the congregation. He's addressing He's addressing husbands, fathers, and bosses, and bosses of people under them, and people that these people would have taken care of. And so, if Paul is addressing bondservants, those who were common laborers, those who were paying off debt, those who were head of households, then it becomes easier for us to then say, this has some application for us. This has some real application for us, and our ears should be open to how Paul instructs bondservants and masters to go about their doing and their daily business. So whatever your vocation is in life, that is the place where God has you and desires you to do the thing with all your heart for the glory of Christ. Look, Paul begins here, bondservants. You can take wherever you are in life right now and insert your vocation right there. It says, bondservants, obey your earthly masters, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Notice first, 
about these couple verses is that how deeply Christ-centered Paul is being here when it comes to their vocation, when it comes to their daily doings, when it comes to their tasks. His point here, uh, if you notice, four times we're going to see reference to Christ, as you would Christ, uh, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God. And then he later says, uh, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, which we know is a title for Christ. Uh, this he will receive back from the Lord. His point is to get these people, to get them to see that their primary purpose in their vocation is Jesus. He's trying to make, make sure that the people in the congregation of Ephesus see that what they do, every single thing that they do, that they have been called to do, everything in the very moment where God has placed them, no matter where they are, who they are, what their vocation is, what their role is in the church of God, he wants them to see that everything they do permeates with Jesus. And he's trying to shift their eyes from, from people-pleasing uh, from you know, solely on getting promotion, solely on looking good in front of people, solely on getting ahead, solely on just getting by or making things work or, or even trying to make a fortune. What he's trying to do is show these people that everything you do is deeply Christ-centered because you're in Jesus. And everything you do matters. It matters. Not only is Paul trying to get them saturated in the person and work of Jesus, in their person and in their work, but he, notice he actually gives what they're doing a very high calling. Because you might be thinking right now, a full-time mom, full-time dad, or part-time business owner, or full-time business owner, or maybe unemployed, or whatever it is that you're doing. It might not seem like much, but notice Paul calls what they're doing, whatever it is, the will of God. Notice in verse 6. He says, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So their vocation just went from whatever it is that they do, right? School teacher, garbage man, full-time business owner, uh, whatever it is. It just went from that to the will of God. So they can't sit there and think to themselves, what I'm doing does not matter, and how I do it does not matter. He titles their vocation as the will of God. And because of this, because he titles it the will of God, he's trying to point out, hey, look, because it's the will of God, do it with all your heart. Do it with every fiber of your being. Do it uh, not so people will look at you and think highly of you, but do it to make Jesus bigger, Jesus higher, and exalt in him as you do it. Uh, I like the way Elizabeth Elliot put it. Uh, I'm going to keep borrowing from her uh, often, is she, she says, this job has been given to me to do. Therefore, it is, a, it is a gift. Therefore, it is a privilege. Therefore, it is an offering I may make to God. Therefore, it is to be done gladly if it is done for him. Here, not anywhere else, I may learn God's way in this job, not in some other. God looks for faithfulness. Look, friends, you do not need to do big things to please God. You just need to do faithful things. You just need to do the next thing. Cheerfully. Gladly. From the heart. Sincerely. With fear and trembling. 
Do the next thing. Do faithful things. Whatever that is. Always with the aim of making Jesus bigger. Remember, look, the goal of the Christian life, I've mentioned this here before, the goal of the Christian life is, is his increase and our decrease. And in that, our joy will be completed. Remember when John the Baptist said that to his disciples, he must increase and I must decrease. He, he afterwards remarked that, uh, and this joy of mine is now complete. You want to find real joy in your vocation? You want to find real purpose in whatever it is that you're doing, whatever it is that you're doing? Find your joy in Jesus increasing in that, and as a believer, that's where your joy is going to be found. It's not going to be found in getting ahead. If your job is your, if you see your job or your vocation as your identity or your, how you measure your worth or, or how you're doing in, 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 the, in the view of God, right? Like whatever your lot might be. Look, the goal of your, whatever it is you're doing, is Jesus wants to be increased and he wants your joy to be complete. And I say this as someone who works as a call center agent as full-time, right? It is very easy. It's been easy throughout my seminary uh, years, my undergrad years, when I was working at a Chick-fil-A, when I was working at an Old Navy, when I was working at a Starbucks, which is awful. Um, when I, you know, and even now when I'm working and I'm fielding questions from angry students, it's easy for me to think, man, like I wish, I wish what I was doing was full-time ministry, I wish what I was doing was what I'm doing now because what I'm doing now, I love doing what I'm doing now. I love interacting with all of you. I love praying for all of you. I love doing, right? I, that's in, in my eyes, in my view, that is where God is being most glorified and my joy is being most complete. But the lessons that I have had to learn is it's not just here as I'm up by on this pulpit and not when I'm in this church, that God is most glorified. God is most glorified and he is most exalted when I was faithfully uh, putting chicken in the fryers at Chick-fil-A for a couple years. He is most glorified and he is most exalted in, right, as I'm answering a simple, basic question from an agent and helping them with a glad, cheerful heart. And when I am executing whatever it is that God has given me to do, whatever the next thing is, friends, in front of you, whether it's to make lunch uh, in this afternoon, whether it's to watch your grandchildren, whether it's to love your spouse, whether it, whatever it is you have on the schedule today, that has been given to you by God to exalt Jesus Christ. And guess what? We cannot do that faithfully if we are addicted to people-pleasing. Notice Paul writes here in verse 6, uh, not by the way of eye service as people-pleasers. We all know what it's like to, to start acting or doing something one way when people are starting to look, especially important people, right? Um, I, I, find it, I find it incredibly amazing how, how, how good of a driver I am when there's a police officer right behind me. It's just, I'm doing the speed. I won't even go five over the speed. I, I'm, I, and especially through Halifax. I mean, that has been a nightmare for me. And what am I doing? What do we do when we do that, though? When we start to drive right, when someone, well, we're, we're people pleasing. We're, we're like, okay, somebody important is looking at me. Somebody within a position of authority is looking at me. Therefore, I'm going to change the way I normally do stuff. Or when I'm on a phone call with a student or an agent and they're just asking the same question they asked literally three days ago and I've got a tone of, you know, kind of condescension happening. My boss is not around and I'm just like, can you just learn what this is? And, and then, or when he's around or when management is around then I've got the most polite voice in the world and I'm delighted to be there and to, ask the, and to answer that question for the 10th time in a row. Wow. 
It's amazing what happens when people who seem to be something and important or who could get me further in whatever it is that I'm doing, all of a sudden, the way that I do it changes. Friends, that is people-pleasing. That is people-pleasing. And Paul says, look, you cannot please God by people-pleasing. You cannot serve Him faithfully. You might be able to do the next thing, but can you do the next thing for the glory of Jesus if you are caught up in loving people-pleasing? Do not do your work for people. You know, whether for their, for their recognition or what they think of you. Uh, people, it's dangerous stuff. It is extremely dangerous stuff to be more concerned about what people think. And look, I'm not saying Christians, you know, go into your workforce and be obnoxious. Right? I'm not saying that you have to be annoying for Jesus. Uh, you, you just have to not care what people think about you or change your work or the way you do things because people are looking at you. Look, if we're going to... People-pleasing is no minor issue. If we're going to give into it at our jobs, we're going to give, it in, give into it in every area of our lives. You want to know how I know? People-pleasing is a matter of the gospel. All right? the, it, it is such a big deal. It's for the preservation of the gospel. You want to know how I know that? It's because Paul, in his letter to, Galatia, to the uh, Galatians, condemned, they were embracing a false gospel because of this very thing of people-pleasing. Listen to these words that Paul writes in Galatians 1, 6-10. I am astonished you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So you have another group of people Right? These some, but even, Paul continues, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As, you have, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. It was the man-pleasing tendency in the churches of Galatia that actually led them to abandon the grace of Jesus Christ and go after a man-centered gospel. It was people-pleasing. It was, what do these people think? It, are these people going to like me? Are these people going to be okay with the message that I have? Are these people, um, what are they going to think? If, um, or, or how can I get ahead? How can I make them like me more? How can I, uh, what can I do to get them to, to make it seem like, oh, I'm not like one of those Christians who believes this or who like, you know, I'm, I'm actually like one of you. Look, people-pleasing is the number one way to start apostizing. You want to fall away from the gospel of grace? You start going after a gospel that's rooted in what man thinks about you and is, 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 is what man wants from you. And that's what Paul says. Paul says, and that's why it's so important that what we do is rooted in Jesus, right? Paul is saying, bond servants, whatever you're doing, do it for the glory of Jesus Christ. Do it to exalt him. Because your work is a matter of the gospel, uh, John put it sharply in his gospel when he is uh, speaking of the Pharisees. Uh, he says, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Look, if Pharisees, people who were employed in the business of religion, right, could do their work, godly work, with a heart of people-pleasing, right, and miss the point of all of it, how much more could us who are not in that line of work 
also miss the point and also fall away from the pure, simple message of the gospel of Jesus. How much more so? If religious elites can fall prey to people-pleasing, can't you, business owner? Can't you, full-time parent, call center agent, retired, whatever farmer, whatever it is, whatever you do, don't love the glory that comes from man. Do not work as people-pleasers Do it then for the sake of Christ. Do it with Christ. Do it in Christ. Paul has been trying to tell the churches all along in this whole letter, you are in Jesus. You are in Jesus. You are in Jesus. You want to know why you can work for the glory of Jesus? Because the glory of Jesus is in you. Do it for him. Do it in him. Do it with him. Make everything you do about him. We just sang the song, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And then Paul rounds out this exhortation in verse 8 with an incentive. If we look at verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. You might say, well, nobody sees the work that I put in. Nobody sees me in what I'm doing. Nobody give, no, I'm not getting that promotion. I'm not getting notice. I'm not getting treated or rewarded as I ought to be. Friends, can I just say that the reward that we're after is not from people? It's okay if you're not being noticed. It's okay if you're not being complimented or or recognized or put on a pedestal. Because our, our, our aim is not, what reward could we get here on earth that's going to be compared with the reward that we're going to receive when we see him face to face? What reward could even amount to the righteousness that has been given to us in Jesus? The reason why I can work and the reason why I can do what I do and the reason why that we can do what we do with a cheerful heart and with a sincere heart is because we're in Jesus. There's no promotion. There's no raise. There is no... Social, there's no circle of influence that you could be a part of that could outmatch or outweigh the currency of righteousness in Jesus that belongs to you. And so we aim not for celebration by man, but we aim for well done and good and faithful servant. Jesus says, you have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And sometimes it feels like we have little. And little does not get recognized. And little does not get celebrated. But God sees and God rewards. I find comfort knowing that Jesus himself knew no difference between the miracles of public ministry and the mundane of washing his disciples' feet. To Jesus, every little act on earth was an act of worship. If you want to give your life as a living sacrifice, that is not uh, high in the sky, academia kind of stuff. That is do the dishes, take the trash out, feed the kids, make dinner, go to work, punch in nine to five. That is the kind of living sacrifice that you can make with the right heart.
The second vice Paul exhorts us to be on our guard against in order to do all for the glory of Christ is to be on guard against partiality. So we're to be on guard against people-pleasing as bondservants, and not toward, mainly as bondservants of whatever job or employee or to each other, but ultimately as bondservants of Christ. And then he addresses masters in verse 9. He writes, do the same to them. Now, I, I didn't notice that throughout the week. Um, I actually didn't know, I didn't really pay much attention to that little line uh, all throughout the week as I was studying it. But last night as I sat at my desk uh, looking at the passage and praying over it again, I, it hit me that Paul's instruction, Paul's first instruction to the masters is to do the same to them. Well, what does Paul mean when he says do the same to them? Well, he means everything that he just instructed the bond servants to do, offering up service with a goodwill and a sincere heart, doing the will of God, rendering service with a goodwill, right? Uh, knowing that whatever good anyone does. So in other words, Paul is saying, hey, you who are above these people, or you who have a, a position of influence or responsibility towards these people, just because you have that position does not, make, does not mean that your job is any less than theirs. When Paul writes, do the same to them, Paul is saying, hey, masters, serve them. Do good to them. Now, in, in pointing out earlier that slavery was not the same as we would think of it here um, in our own country, uh, th there's no doubt instances where masters were abusive and mistreated those who were slaves. Right? To, to deny that uh, would to be historically uh, dishonest. So that's why Paul says, stop your threatening. Because if he has to say, stop your threatening, there was obviously masters and people in high positions who used their positions to exploit and to abuse uh, their power. And we're familiar with all of that, are we not? I mean, we're fit. people who have positions of influence are usually the kind of people, maybe they're not, they usually steep in people-pleasing, but more than often than not, uh, partiality is a big thing. Meaning people who are not in the same position that I am uh, I'm going to treat differently, I'm going to act differently around, and I'm going uh, to, I have this air of I'm better than you. They're always drinking their coffee with their pinky up and uh, walking into a room expecting everybody to think that they're a big deal. And so Paul says, masters, do the same to them. Uh, in other words, uh, you serve and you do good and you do the same things without needing recognition or celebration just as the bond servants do. Right? So uh, Paul is saying if you're in a position of influence here, whether it's in the church or whether it's in your vocation, whether you are uh, a boss or whether you, whoever you have under you, uh, do not think that you're beneath serving them. Don't think you're beneath the person who has a lesser vocation than you do. Don't think that the person who has the lower income um, than you do or has less than you do is the lesser person. And don't just hang out with people that are like you. Don't, don't just, uh, Paul is, uh, you know, it, it would have been easy probably for the masters to, you know, uh, you know, to, to get together at the country club together all the time, and they have their own little, you know, circles of friends. They only talk to one another. They only talk about, you know, what's happening on Wall Street and the stocks. And, and you know, like, it, it would have been easy for these people uh, to think of themselves because they owned slaves, because they were heads of households, and because they had influence within the church, that then they, that exempted them from serving and washing feet. And yet, Paul says, do the same 
to them. He puts them at the level of slaves. So if anyone else wants to argue that the Bible's endorsing you know, some type of uh, awkward slave inferiority relationship, just point to this verse and say, well, then why did Paul say, masters, do the same as your servants are doing? Christ does not save us on the basis of favoritism. And I am thankful and grateful for the fact that his salvation is not based on a partiality. He, he does not save on the basis of ethnicity or economic status or social status. He does not have a favorite child in the household. And so we, too, ought not to have a favorite child in the household. That's Paul's point here. He says, Uh, Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Uh, This text is extremely Christ-filled. There is no partiality with him. There is no partiality in his salvation between Jew and Gentile, between poor and rich, between good and bad, James and... His epistle says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Uh, Notice just how deeply uh, connected people-pleasing is with a true uh, gospel, how deeply connected with partiality is with a true gospel. Right? Uh, why, if the gospel was not so uh, at stake when it comes to treating people differently uh, based on their status or their position, you know, why would Paul then relate the partiality that he's in exhorting the masters to guard themselves against and not to engage in? Why would he relate it then to God himself? There's no partiality with God. It's connected with the character of God. Uh, or why would James uh, connect partiality with the faith in our Lord Jesus unless it was not a gospel issue? Uh, you know, I, I will just say this. Partiality, whether in the form of racism or elitism or class or whatever it is, uh, it is a gospel issue. Don't, don't, ever, don't ever believe that it is acceptable in the church of God for there to be a division based on anything. Uh, whether that's global or whether that is local. Uh, you know, Paul, Paul's instructions here in the church at Ephesus is, is there's no partiality with God. There should be no partiality with you. And this is after chapter 3, or chapter 2, verses 11, all the way through chapter 4, in the end of chapter 4, where Paul is begging with the church, pleading with the church, maintain the unity. Maintain the unity. Prioritize unity. You are all one in Jesus. Uh, If we confess a gospel for all people, if we confess all people made in the image of God, then we cannot make distinctions, especially those of the household of faith. And so Paul's instructions to masters have deep application and implication for us as Christians, as everyday common Christians, as people a part of the body of Jesus, right? The masters, uh, these are not Uh, This is not just uh, reserved for those who have power and influence. Look, because you yourself also have some type of power and influence. Don't use it to show partiality. Uh, Paul writes in Galatians 3, 28-29, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. 
But here's what Paul's not doing here. Paul's not ignoring the difference between these people, right? He's not uh, throwing out this really shallow one-liner, I don't see any differences in any people, we're all the same. No, 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 no. Uh, when Paul writes that there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, what he is saying is he's saying there is no, all the differences that you do have that are real are not differences in a matter of salvation and grace. It's not, it should not be an issue when it comes to unity. It should not become an issue when it comes to the gospel. It should not be, uh, the differences don't make any difference in the household of God. So Paul's instructions to both bondservants and to masters have application to all of us has application to all of us as the church of God. Remember, he's writing to a congregation. So if this didn't have application to a congregation, then he wouldn't have written it. God would not have designed it to be fixed in this passage for us. So whether you are uh, in a seemingly low position or a have little or you have much, God's requirement for you in that is to make much of Jesus in all of it and to exalt his lordship and to live and operate and do all you're doing in business in a way that says, my God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. My God is in heaven. He has, he has bestowed salvation on all those who call upon him in faith and grace. And it does not matter what I have in life. It doesn't matter where I am in relation to my brother or my sister. Whatever it is, we are all one in Jesus. And our role is to make much of him. And so whether that is uh, doing menial tasks or big tasks, the goal is the same. Whether you're bondservant or master, whether you're free, whatever it is, you are tied to the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage is filled with Christ. And let me, ask you, let me ask you something. Is all you're doing filled with him? This passage is filled with him from verses 5 through 9. For the bondservants, for the masters, is filled with Jesus. And is your life filled with Jesus? Does all your work, is it filled with Christ? Is your vocation and your service toward one another and those you interact with on a daily basis coming in contact with Christ? He who knew no tasks not worth doing with all his heart. Do you do everything and all you're doing with all your heart and soul to God the Father for the glory of Jesus Christ? He who did not seek to please people, but to save them through his aiming to please one, his Father in heaven. Think about that. The reason why salvation is available is because Jesus didn't give a rip what anybody thought. It didn't, give him, it didn't matter what people thought of him, what they said about him, whether he was a drunkard or whether he was a glutton or whether, whatever it was. It did not matter. What only mattered was what the Father saw as pleasing to the Son, and the Son did that, and in doing so, uh, even when that brought him to the cross of Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me, me who was nothing like him, you who was not anything like him, unholy and unlovable, it didn't matter, Jesus did what he was doing for the glory of his Father, and he invites us into a relationship with him, not on the basis of what we can do for him or how much we are like him, but solely on the basis of his own merits and grace. Do you know this Jesus? Do you live for this Jesus? Do you live in step with this Jesus? Is all you're doing done for his glory? If it is, then we will be on guard against people pleasing and we will be on guard against partiality. Let it not be said of us that we are a people about people or about division, but we are a people about the glory of Jesus being demonstrated in us. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this text. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you have given each and every single one of us a high calling. Uh, whether we have positions that are considered good and high in the world's eyes, or whether we are just trying to get by, or whether we have small tasks, big tasks, we've all been given the same task, whether elder, whether deacon, whether member. The task and the glory is to bring you much glory, and we do that together. Father, it is something of a a miracle that both bond servants and masters here in this passage would be dependent on one another to bring you glory. Let it be said of the same of us here at Faith, that we depend on each and every single person, no matter where we're at in lives, to bring you the most glory and to complete our joy in seeing you be made big. Pray that you bless this time at the table as we come together. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.